across campus, online, and on 12:51 a.m. This, this, this is your student radio station. Great to have you company again, as hopefully we've had for the last um, four weeks as well. Thanks very much for um, tuning in again. It's fantastic to have you listening to us today. We've got a lot to talk about. It's certainly been quite a busy week in the news. We have Brexit, we have coronavirus, we have Scottish independence, we have the return of students back home from the end of term one going back up to term two and our own little counterfactual of what happens if the UK never join the EU. It's fair to say not a particularly quiet week at all but a lot for us to get through today and of course it's not just myself for the next two hours. I feel that would absolutely bore you to death but I am joined by um, two fantastic guests for today's show. So firstly, it is um, the head of news here at Royal 1251am. And I feel as it's Christmas, I feel he's been upgraded from a guiding light to a guardian angel. It is Enoch Makungu. Hi, Cam. Thanks for having me on. Fantastic to um, have you back on. Now, you've gone home, I believe. I, I am home, yes. I am what what does it feel out. like to be back home? Um, I feel like I've escaped. That, that's the thing, the key thing. Um, it's very, it's very, very weird walking down because I left, went from Leamington and Coventry, it's all shut down, everything's closed, back to London, where there's still a sense of life about the place. Uh, I'm just going to enjoy it as long as I can. And hopefully that is quite a lot, at least until Christmas, hopefully. Well, yeah, because there is, there is a rumour, obviously London at the moment is in Tier 2. Um, there is a rumour that you could find yourself plunged into Tier 3 very soon. I've learned with this government that whenever I hear there's a rumour, I just automatically assume it's true because it always means someone's leaked something to someone and we can just have, we just like, all right, any day now, I gotta get to, I gotta go out as much as possible because any day now they're gonna be pushing us all back into the pen. Yeah, well, we hope normality. I think it's the common theme over the last um, couple of weeks of vaccines that we are looking ahead to some form of normality and getting that back now. Fingers crossed that is slightly closer than we hope. Well, Enoch, it's great to have you um, on the show today. And also joining us today is um, Johnny Hoyle. Good afternoon, Johnny. Hello, Cam. Great to be on again. No, absolutely fantastic um, to have you back on the show. Um, you've gone home as well? No, I'm actually I'm actually still at, still at uni for a couple more days, then, uh, then off home, home to Essex. Yeah, how, how are you looking forward to heading back? Because it's, it's been a fairly manic term. It's nice to, you know, relax over Christmas. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to going home, really. Uh, a good break after a topsy-turvy first term, really. Yeah, no, absolutely. I've got to ask you guys as well. Obviously, this Christmas isn't um, like every other Christmas, but have you both got anything good planned over Christmas? Dinner, so, you know, I, I guess. You... Yeah, dinner. <laughs> That's it. That's the peak. That's the new highlight. Um, no, oh, you know, I... It's, it's very weird. It's very weird because I mean, obviously previously, you know, Christmas we'd have the whole family come round. Maybe we'd go out to Africa, visit my my grandparents, that kind of thing. But obviously this year it's just me, my mum, my sister. Um, it's yeah, it's gonna be weird. The house gonna be very empty. I think I've after the first lockdown, I've gotten so used to having like my nephews running around all the time. But now they've all gone back to their own homes. They're no, they no need babysitting, need babysitting anymore. So it it feels very weird to be back home and have it so empty. But we'll, we'll persevere through. I'm sure. Uh, what about yourself, Johnny? Anything nice happening over Christmas? Well, well, you know, I mean, Christmas usually is a time for family and friends. And being up at uni, I've got all my uni friends, but I haven't quite had the opportunity to go home, you know, see the family, see friends from home. So actually, I think it's going to be a, a very wholesome festive period, really, possibly even in a bizarre way, more wholesome 
and more festive than usual, really. No, I, absolutely. I think wholesome is a very nice way to be spending your Christmas. And um, when it comes to spending your Christmas, um, if you do have some free time on Christmas Day, which let's face it, you definitely will, perhaps you should consider giving a listen to Royal 1251 AM and consider um, listening to what I'm going to be doing over Christmas. Because, yes, the alternative view is going to be on Royal 1251 AM here on Christmas Day. Um, I can't reveal too much. Um, about what we're going to be doing, mainly because I haven't actually planned it yet. But um, it will be fantastic to have your company. We've been putting out across all of our social medias on our Facebook and our Twitter. So please do listen. We'll again give you more of an update on when exactly we're going to be on air. And yeah, it's going to be absolutely fantastic. I can assure you of that. Of course, no pressure on myself or anything that I've just put on me there. But it's fantastic to have Enoch and Johnny on the show today. Um, Let's talk about this week in news. There has been, it's fair to say, quite a lot that has happened. And so I feel it's fair to say if we're going to go over all of the news, I think we should do it. I think we should do it in 60 seconds. So in three, two, one. And so Brexit has obviously been dominating. It's been dominating last few years, but it's really reared its head over the last week. So the EU Council is set to meet on Thursday. That is supposed to be the deadline for which a deal can be reached. Um, both the UK and the EU have said that a deal is looking very difficult at the moment, although there have been movements. The UK have withdrawn some of the most controversial clauses from the internal market bill. There have been potential deals on fishing, we hear, have been reached, and potentially as well as state aid and competition. They remain the key points, but a no-deal Brexit does seem a lot clearer at, at, at the moment. And, of course, the transition period can't be extended beyond um, New Year's Day. Um, of course, another thing, coronavirus as well. We have had the first vaccines now being vaccinated in the UK. The Pfizer vaccine has been going out, um, but coronavirus is still around. Um, Nottingham Christmas Market got closed down on Saturday owing to social distancing there. London, as I said, could be moving into tier three, but Scotland, though, is moving down four tiers there. Three, 11 areas moving down to tier three. It's quite clear coronavirus is still around, and that is just the highlight of the news in 60 seconds. There's quite a lot with um, Brexit, coronavirus, and also a lot of other things as well. Obviously, Joe Biden is also continuing to assemble his cabinet as well. So that's very interesting indeed. But that's not the only news that has come out over the last week. Enoch, if I can come to you first. Um, COVID vaccines, as we mentioned before, um, the Pfizer vaccine has now been started to be distributed around the UK. Um, and in particular, it has been distributed very close to the university. Um, it has. The, Pfizer, the first dose of the Pfizer vaccine was... Um, was administered you know, um, in Coventry itself. So Warwick University is right there and the centre at the heart of things. I, I um, feel that's where it should be. Um, we, we can discuss that later. <laughs> um, oh, I think, and obviously all the focus has been on the first person vaccinated, Margaret, a 90-year-old woman who gave a very brave speech about how it's going to re- empower her and encourage people to take the vaccine. Um, but I'll focus on the second person to get vaccinated, um, Mr. William Shakespeare from Warwickshire. Um, yes, the bard himself was vaccinated today at you know, Coventry University Hospital. Um, of course, not, not the bard himself, unless he's far older than he's letting on. Um, William is an 80-year-old man from the exact same place as Shakespeare, William Shakespeare, with um, the same name. Uh, Curtis Perry was given him so many years ago, um, an act of absolute cruelty that's now given us some great headlines this morning. Um, I oh. think my, my favourite was The Taming of the Flu. I I, I feel there's so many Shakespeare related puns I feel that you could make out of this but um, we'll be talking a little more about vaccinations 
and getting those vaccines distributed and overriding some of the scepticism that is associated with that. But obviously, before we start, one of the things we've seen is we've seen a lot of the tiering system, the way that the UK are going to be distributing these vaccines, starting off with um, care homes, starting off with the elderly moving down. Um, when do you think that obviously we've seen the vaccination starting today? But when do you think we can possibly get back to some form of normality? I, I think it's all a question of, firstly, how quickly can the NHS scale up their operation of giving out vaccines? Um, how quickly can you get the most vulnerable protected? And how quickly can Oxford come through on their vaccine, which not only cuts down on the, the effects of coronavirus and how ill you get, but also cuts down transmission. Um, so the current vaccines we have mean that even if you, if you sort of get coronavirus and you have the vaccine, it probably won't make um, affect you too bad, but you can still transmit it, so you'll be asymptomatic. Whereas Oxford cuts down transmission as well. Um, and Oxford's going to be the one majority of us get. Uh, also, we don't have enough doses for everyone just yet, which has been the big problem of the current order we have. Uh, it's all a very good first step, but I still think summer, summer of next year, is when we're looking to get back to normal. Well, we'll be returning to the subject of coronavirus vaccinations um, soon. But Johnny, um, coronavirus is not, it seems, the only um, illness that has been passing around. Um, in India, a um, country that is the second worst hit by coronavirus in terms of cases in the world, and I believe high up with fatalities as well, um, but a new illness that seems to emerge in India over the weekend. Oh, well, yes, it's seemingly very topical at the moment, topical this year. Uh, there's been some sort of mystery illness which has hospitalised over 300 uh, individuals. And uh, there's no sign as of yet that there was any water contamination or, or anything like that, suggesting that it could be a genuine virus or bacteria-based uh, illness. Uh, the symptoms are ranging from nausea anxiety to loss of consciousness which is really quite worrying really no definitely worrying um obviously and i think this is something we can reflect certainly um i can remember going on many raw shows in term two not all dismissing the coronavirus but almost i think i'm playing it simply because we haven't had a pandemic like that and we thought it wasn't something that would happen but do you think now we've had obviously the covid outbreak this year that this illness is going to be treated more seriously perhaps too much seriously than it should be well i think it's hard to judge but it, i think what this has probably brought into reality is the fact that there must be dozens of scares like this you know dozens and dozens of, of flare-ups of, of unknown viruses or illnesses which do usually sort themselves out so i can't say for sure but you know you have to put it in the context that covid's or you know once in a century sort of pandemic really but um, but maybe, who knows, really? Well, yeah, I mean, it must be said as well. We have um, currently, admittedly, a very low risk, but also um, colds of birds taking place over the risk of bird flu at the moment. So health scares, I think, obviously, at the top of a lot of people's um, minds at the moment. Um, speaking of scares, perhaps, um, pornography, prostitution, gambling and violence. Um, these are four reasons why China has banned TripAdvisor um from being used within its country now um it's 105 apps and they've broken um three national security laws but um that has been very much seen as the sort of central the four main reasons as to why these apps have been banned now um this is obviously taking place at the moment within quite a interesting um 
sort of cyber conflict taking place between the United States and China at the moment. We've seen rows take place over TikTok and the US trying to ban TikTok and potentially buy out the US wing of it. Um, very much a lot of debates over intellectual property as well in China. So it's, it's part of this sort of wider episode, perhaps. Johnny, if I could come to you first. Um, do you think this is just very much a sort of tit for tat response from China in response to what has been going on with TikTok? Well, uh, I think, you know, the, the Chinese government must be thinking that uh, the Biden administration will be more favorable to uh, the Chinese flexing their, their muscles in, um, in Asia. So I think this potentially is just a first warning sign uh, to, to the Trump administration that you know their time's up. It's time to time to go. Time to move on. Sort of a you know last laugh, maybe. Yeah, and Enoch, what, what do you think this means for Biden and for policy towards China more in general? Well, I, I think sort of conventional wisdom is Joe Biden's going to be a lot softer on China than Trump has, simply because anyone has to be more softer in China than Trump has. It's just sort of how you know force of nature works but I, I i do i do think biden may take a tougher line than we expect from china and so i i, I think this may be trying to flex their muscles in advance of biden coming in saying look we've seen what trump wants to do we've prepared for that kind of retail and we will retaliate in kind so back down before you before you can get started well it must be said that a lot of them the discussions even on the towards from the democrats towards china as well have been increasingly tougher the stance they've taken, particularly on trade as well over the last few years, that seems to be one element of harmony between the Democrats and the Republicans in the last few years. It will be interesting, of course, to see how that develops. So that's some of the biggest stories in the news um, this week. Um, we'll be back very shortly discussing arguably the biggest story of them all and arguably the most frustrating one, Brexit. Music. Welcome back to another week of Psychedemics. Hello, everybody. You're listening to The Vinny Show. You are listening to Rockstar. I'm backstage Casper. We're starting to get Hello, guys. Sports. There's a team spirit going on behind it. You're all rooting for each other. Oh, yeah. Good job. Well, that's it. Yeah! Arts. I love the idea of popular films being nominated for Oscars. I just think the style that Marvel has made has just put them, like, way above. Speech. You must get to the maths and stats building using three different modes of transport. Oh, my God. There's a trolley. <laughs> really all about like educating networking and sharing our stories i think the su has a really uh, important role in engaging students with politics news good evening and welcome to the big decision ben and larissa tied this is your student radio station this is raw 1251 am Across campus, online, and on 12.51am, this, this, this is your student radio station. Brexit has been arguably one of the most, um, well, unarguably even, one of the frankly most fractious and sort of topical issues over the last few years. Brexit has seemed to be on the tip of everyone's tongue, dominating everyone's aspect of their lives, at least until coronavirus came about. But it seems like Brexit is now starting to come to some form of a conclusion. And this week is very much seen as the crunch week. I know we've done many segments on this show in the past. Is this the crunch week for Brexit? Is this the crunch week for Brexit? This really seems to be the crunch week for Brexit now. And with the last EU Council summit taking place this Thursday, 
it's very much seen as the last chance for any UK EU trade deal to be passed. And there have been some quite significant moves in the last few days, but is this going to be enough? Now, a quick sort of brief on the situation. The three main points of contention has been um, with regards to fishing, with regards to competition and state aid, and more widely with regards to the stability of the EU's internal market. And both sides haven't been able to reach some form of conclusion in relation to this, particularly over the Northern Ireland's um, border, which, of course, the internal market bill that the government introduced was seen to very much contravene, breaking international law in a specific and limited way, in its own words, to effectively try and, and circumvent some of the procedures that would lead to customs checks taking place between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. Now, let's start off with the internal market bill, I guess, because that is that's the big news that has come out just before we started recording this show, which is that um, elements of the internal market bill, all the elements regarding um, the bits that would have broken international law have now been removed from the internal market bill. And it's going to go through the Commons and through the Lords without those amendments. So it suggests that there is some movement, although we're not entirely sure we're recording this on Tuesday evening. We're not entirely sure what that movement entails yet. So, um, Enoch, let's come to you first on this. Um, what do you what what have you seen with regards to the internal market, but with regards to some of the negotiations more generally? Does this mean that there's going to be a deal? Uh does I think when we're dealing with all these trying to pass the press statements from both the EU and the UK, I think it's a bunch of smoke and mirrors. We are we are essentially waiting outside the papal chapel, waiting for that white smoke to go up and tell us who whether or not we have a deal or we don't have a deal. Um I think I think both sides have been fairly misleading. And I but I do think, you know, at the end of the day, we look back at the internal market bill. I think that did serious damage to negotiations. I think it it made you know to look like an untrustworthy untrustworthy partners in the negotiating process i think it was mostly done so they could do what they're doing now where they say look how about rather than any concessions we drop something you didn't like and then maybe that can help us go forward i i don't see how well it's going to work i'm desperately hoping it does work because you know i think i know i come off quite brexit negative but i we needed you know we've left you now we need a deal we need a good deal to pass for the first i don't want no deal so i, I want to pass this deal you know godspeed to you boris johnson get that deal passed well, Johnny, um, are you wishing Godspeed Boris Johnson on this deal? How how much of an impact do you think the internal market bill and this change that the government has announced where they're removing those clauses that break international law in a specific and limited way? How significant do you think that is? Well, um, I'd say first and foremost, uh, if, it's, if it's not Brexit, if it doesn't get Brexit done, if it doesn't, you know, adhere to the wishes of all those people across this country who voted for Brexit time and time again, then it should not be passed. So I, I don't necessarily think uh, a deal at any cost is, is worthwhile. I think the, the limited break of international law is interesting because I guess in essence that shows the whole relationship between us and the European Union. You know, we, we wanted to do something as a nation and we were told we're not allowed to do it. And I think that actually adds on to the, the mantra that um, you know, Britain's lost its place in the world, lost its you know global standing in the world. So I think actually it it was a necessary uh, precaution to take. And I think you know, Enoch's absolutely right when he says it, it seems as if it's something which later along the line, uh, later down the line, 
the UK government was going to give up and and um, and use as like a concession to sort of gain favour of the European Union. Um, but I, you know, only time will tell the the full ramifications of, of that act, whether it was beneficial or or proved to scupper the trade talks. Well, I think certainly time will tell. Let's just come back to something, Johnny, that you touched upon there right at the start of your answer, which was exactly the sort of form of Brexit that if it's getting Brexit done, what is that form of Brexit look like? Of course, Boris Johnson said at the last election that he had this oven ready deal that was ready to go. Now, obviously, that was in many references to withdrawal agreement. And we knew that there were going to be outstanding areas with regards to um, a future trading partnership apart from obviously knowing that that was going to be what the government were aiming for, a Canada plus relationship. So what, what Johnny, do you see as a deal that gets Brexit done in the, your eyes and what you have also said is the eyes of the 17.4 million people who voted for Brexit? Well, it's, just, it's very interesting, this point, because you know, essentially all Britain is, is calling for, all Great Britain and Northern Ireland is calling for is a deal which is akin to the deal which the European Union gave to Canada, Australia, Japan, which respects those individual nations' sovereignty. Uh, and, you know, we would be the only country in the world to, on the first day of gaining independence, give over half our fishing waters or our fishing rights. That is not the actions of what a, a independent sovereign nation does. So we need to make sure the deal maintains uh, and, you know, actually improves our sovereignty and standing in the world. And we need to hold fast and not give in to any uh, demands which challenge the sovereignty. Well, Enoch, what, what do you say in response to that then? Do you think that there is a deal that you can get both as much as you can from the EU and better access whilst retaining your sovereignty as well? I think um, in a- any dealing with any, any, between any two groups, there's always going to be an act of compromise. No, um, neither side is going to walk away from these talks fully happy. And I think that, that, that with myself will be evidence that we have achieved something like a good deal. I, I do agree. You know, British people, they want back control of the you know, fishery rights, all that kind of stuff. Um, but when it comes to, to doing international standing, I, I don't really see a deal that can properly preserve that, that Britain is very happy with, in particular in regards to Northern Ireland, which has become not just a hot button issue here, but a place like America. They are now looking at us and looking at how we respond to that situation. And I think, especially with going into a Joe Biden administration, we're very cold towards Boris Johnson. That's going to become a very big issue if that part of the deal doesn't go um, the way America thinks it should go. Well, I mean, you raise a very interesting point there. I guess one thing to say in regards to that is you make the point of um, not everyone being happy with some form of deal. Now, one of the things that was said to have held back um, the withdrawal agreement withheld Theresa May was very much the sort of perhaps intransigence many people argued was taking place on both sides. We've seen it and um, we saw it then with um, many conservative backbenchers, members of the European Research Group, um, refusing to vote through Theresa May's deal. Many have argued we've seen it now, for example, with President Macron and his insistence on French access to UK fishing waters. So I guess, look, we, now the thing is, we don't know what the deal is going to look like at the moment. But do, do you think that there is anyone that has to be particularly pleased with a deal? Do you think that there's, if there's a particular group or a particular person that's not impressed with any form of deal, then we're going to be ending up with no deal? So, Enoch, I'll come to you first on um, that. 
the 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 sad answer, um, which I'll, I'll touch on briefly for getting into probably uh, you know more UK centric one is Joe Biden's supposed to get the press of this deal. That's um, both EU and England, and I'm looking towards Joe Biden saying this is the guy we really want on our side from now on. We need to have a deal that he thinks works and he thinks advantages you know his idea of internationalism and globalism. Um, I think but, it, it but very... it's, I was just going to say Joe Biden hasn't really been around in these negotiations he hasn't been a feature the feature's very much more been yeah. the sort of sovereignty I, I issue, think, is it not yeah i think i think joe biden you know may, now maybe before the election now he's been elected the the shadow of america is long and even without direct involvement it's part of the undertone of the entire thing i mean if you remember back to the talks of the uk america usa trade deal that was sort of underpinning lots of people's confidence earlier in the year that's now sort of faded away now that donald trump is gone i mean that you know these are, all, these are sort of all the elements that matter. But I think in terms of in UK politics, who it matters that this deal impresses, um, I think it really does come down to the, ER, the European Research Group. If Boris Johnson can't win them over to this deal, I, maybe maybe if he gets able to back it, then he can still do it. I think so. I guess either it's either can't, who's in charge of the European Research Group again? Either Jacob Rees-Mogg's or Keir Starmer. Those I, I, be, I believe it's Steve Baker. Okay, okay. At the moment, or um, um, Mark Francois. I should, I should really yeah. check that. Who, you know, what, um, hopefully <laughs> soon it won't matter. Hopefully in a in a few weeks' time, no one will care about Europe anymore, and we can all move on to our golden Brexit wonderland. Um, yeah. So I, so either Steve Baker, which I mean, good luck to Boris on that one, or Keir Starmer. Um, th- those are the two people Boris needs to win over to make sure this deal passes. So those two people need to impress. Yeah. Um, just to clarify, the chair of the ERG is uh, Mark Francois. At oh, the well moment. then. So I'm, I'm oh, just, really? just to clarify the point that's, of accuracy. That's sad. Oh, poor, um, sorry. Johnny, <laughs> if I can, I guess it's that same question, really. Um, do you think that any deal passing is contingent on the ERG like it was the first time? Or do you think, because we've heard mutterings from Labour that they could mm. back a deal, and we've also seen that when it's come to Brexit and many other issues, that Labour have tended to abstain on them on recently. Well, you know, in recent times, it's hard to actually imagine uh, the size of the majority which Boris has uh, to play with at the moment, which is very important. And actually, you know, that big contingent of red wall conservative Tory MPs, I think they are the key MPs you need to win over. Um, you know, places like Great Grimsby voted Tory for the first time, which is is a small fishing uh, fishing town. And whilst it seems that you know fishing is not such a big thing, Boris needs to keep in mind that to be in power in four years' time, he's going to have to enact the promises he made. We we learnt with Theresa May, um, and even Jeremy Corbyn to a lesser extent. When you defy the wishes of the British people, you're going to be hurt at the ballot box. Um, but there is definitely a way of winning over the ERG. Need to bear in mind we've got people like Jacob Rees-Mogg uh, in cabinet. You've got Dominic Raab in cabinet. You've got some of these big Brexiteers who hold a lot of weight uh, amongst the Conservative backbenchers in cabinet. I don't think the ERG would be an issue at all, really. Uh, maybe a, a mere dozen, uh, maybe two dozen. But we have the arithmetic to to get that through the House of Commons. Well, certainly um, Boris Johnson's um, larger parliamentary majority has. Um... I think, as we saw with the passage of the withdrawal agreement, made it a lot easier for him to get consensus on Brexit. Um, I guess just one last thing, really, on the point of Brexit. And I guess it is that uncertainty at the moment. I think this whole debate that we have had has been very fraught with uncertainty. So I guess to both Enoch and to Johnny, um, what do you think is the most likely um, agreement going to be come Thursday? 
and specifically as well, maybe touching more on the no deal. Um, what impact do you think that will have for the UK standing within the world, its relationship with the EU as well? So, Enoch, let's come to you first on this. I think uh, most likely a deal a deal will pass. Cooler heads will prevail. A deal will pass. Um, whether or not the EU compromise more than Boris, um, at this point, I cannot say. I, I, but I think crucial. Uh, it's all going to come down to I think you say state aid, fisheries, and North, and Northern Ireland. It's inescapable. Um, what what a no deal Brexit would do to Britain's standing in the world, and I mean, obviously, having no trade relationship with Europe would be dev- devastating. Um, but w, um, WTO rules, they were simply it's preferable to have a deal. Let's just put it out there. Um, in terms of the rest of the world views us, I, I think it would be seen, you know, almost as the way America was viewed when Trump was first elected. I mean, that sort of same moment of, oh God, they've really done it. That, you know, having that moment. But I think Britain has a, you know, Britain can come back to that. We have too many important relationships with other countries to, you know, experience any real significant loss. Maybe a short embarrassment, but I, don't, I think we can persevere. Okay, Johnny, would you agree with that? What do you think is most likely mm. the outcome of these negotiations? And if we do end up with no deal, what does that mean for Britain, its relationship in the world and with the EU? Is, can I say, maybe no deal better than a bad deal? So um, with regard to whether there'll be a deal or not, so I, I, do, I do agree. I, I think a deal is more likely just than, than no deal. I think also got to, imagine, uh, got to bear in mind the, the context of the situation we're in. We're in a global pandemic where no one has got off scot-free you know everyone's having a huge uh, economic impact from this and the last thing um the eu or britain wants is uh not free trade with each other um i i, I do think first of all domestically uh, a bad deal will, will play play badly of boris domestically a bad deal which is a halfway house will play badly um i think with regards to international standing um, in the case of No Deal, I, th- I think there's there's a sort of aspect of that which is you know almost slightly appealing. Uh, no, you know, no, you're not being handcuffed to the European Union. There's the ability to trade a- and talk with emerging markets around the world, which are growing far faster than uh, the European Union as a market. Um, but of course, you know, I'd much rather take free trade deal with, with Europe and the ability to strike these deals with emerging economies well absolutely it must be said as well obviously the eu deal is not the only one that the uk is working on of course there are plans to work on a deal with the us and deals that have already been struck uh, most notably with canada and sorry japan but also looking for deals with canada australia new zealand as well but obviously this negotiation with the eu is going to be a very big part of um, the uk's future place in the world whatever happens this week i think I think we can all agree the consequences are going to be very significant indeed. Um, we'll be talking about um, Scottish independence next, about um, Nicola Sturgeon and the Sturgeon paradox. But firstly, this. Looking for a bite to eat at the Warwick SU? Daily specials and fine dining experience at the brand new Canopy. Karaoke, pub grub and lager on top of the Dirty Duck. Salad and sarnies to go in the bread oven. Or a latte link up at Curiosity. There's something to suit any taste and any budget. And if you've got a big night ahead of the copper room, start it right at Tea Bar. With speciality cocktails. Best stock prices. And our expertly stocked bar overlooking the piazza. At Warwick SU Outlets, there's something to satisfy every taste. 
your breakfast, the feel-good way to start your day. This is Breakfast Radio for Warwick students, by Warwick students. Playing the feel-good hits and brightening up your morning. Plus, we have the best gaps, games and giveaways to freshen up your stagecoach commute. Listen to Raw Breakfast every day from 8am. Across campus, online and on 12.51am. This, this, this is your student radio station. Nicola Sturgeon, the Scottish First Minister, um, has emerged as one of the most unpopular figures um, within Scotland this year. Um, This, of course, with herself managing um, the coronavirus pandemic and her record as well. Of course, Boris Johnson facing a lot of criticism for his handling of the pandemic. But Nicola Sturgeon as well, with a fairly checkered record when it comes to things like high transmission rates, a high number of deaths taking place within Scotland as well. Yet, um, in a Spectator article by Alex Massey this week, he was talking about the Sturgeon paradox. And it's a thing we've touched on when we've talked about independence before. But perhaps to um, reflect on this, um, focus groups taking place in Scotland over um, the last few weeks have given um, Nicola Sturgeon a, 40, a plus 49 point approval rating within Scotland at the moment. And support for Scottish independence has never been higher. And again, this during a pandemic where Scotland's record itself has not been che- has been checkered similarly, really, to the rest of the UK. So let's talk about this Sturgeon paradox. Then is it something that can be solved? Almost can the unionists find a way to break it down and almost save the unionist course? Let's start off with you, Johnny, on this. Um, what what do you make of it? The the sort of the headline that. Um, Alex Massey has in this article is, you know, the worse she does, the more popular she becomes. Uh, well, well, yeah, she's, she's a very interesting um, figure and, and plays the game very well, I might add. Um, but you do sort of get this sense that she's untouchable. You know, she could participate in, in any number of criminal activities and seemingly her, her polling rating will go up, her approval will go up. Um, you obviously, of course, had this Margaret um, Ferrier incident with a SNP MP travelling on public transport, having known about a uh, being positive for for coronavirus, um, up from London to to Scotland, and um, you know did that did not get the same um, same you know tough view which the SNP and Sturgeon gave Dominic Cummings, for example. Uh, but saying is there a strategy? Well, I think the strategy actually started working uh, up running up into the twenty seventeen general election. You obviously had unionists winning, um, you know, double digit seats in in, uh, in Scotland, far more than people had expected. Um, and also, I think that there is a playbook. There's a playbook to stop separatist movements. In in Quebec, in Canada, in 1995, you had a referendum go down to a 50.58 percent, 49.42 percent vote in favour of of just about remaining part of Scotland. Uh, sorry, remaining part of Canada. And I think, you know, 30 years since then, desire for Quebec independence has massively diminished and gone down. There is certainly a playbook to um, lessen popularity for independence. So I think we just need to hold our nerve as a nation and not give a second um, independence referendum. And eventually, I think this problem will go away. People will get fed up. Well, we'll return to that playbook very shortly. But Enoch, if I can come to you really on that same question. Um, 
just some of the things that has happened um, under this SNP's um, premiership in Scotland. You have some of the highest poverty rates in Europe um, within Glasgow. Um, Scotland, um, a country, you know, very much speaks highly of its education system, but its maths grades and its science grades are amongst some of the lowest in the world on the PISA ranking league tables. Um, Its NHS services in Scotland have some of the longest waiting times in the country. And yet Nicola Sturgeon seems to be pursuing ahead on the point of independence. Does this speak to something, perhaps, that, that there's if you run Nicola Sturgeon more on what the SNP has its devolved powers in Scotland, then perhaps that's a way for unionists to overcome this Sturgeon paradox. What do you make of that? I think Nicola Sturgeon's unique power, I, I think I say unique power, she's one of the best at it in the UK currently, probably the best in the UK currently, is her ability to craft a narrative for herself and the ability of that narrative to sort of uh, subsume everything. Um, it helps in Scotland, they have lots of very much pro-independent press there, um, so that sort of helps carry a lot of the weight. But she, I think she manages to sell a narrative where every, every success is down to her and her government. Every failure is the fault of the, the, the you know, UK government not giving her enough power, enough freedom. And it's very hard to counter that narrative because, you know, similar to back in 20, you know, back in 2016, no one wants to be the, no one likes the person who shows up at the party and says, um, actually, you'll think you'll find that's wrong. And this is, no one, people don't, I think that's another very effective campaigning strategy. What unions need to do is find someone the same bit, similar to Ruth Davidson. Ruth Davidson was absolutely brilliant at it, to, find, to make a counter narrative and resell people on unionism. Well, let, let's stick with that point of then the unionists needing to find someone. Um, Johnny, um, the obviously Scottish Conservatives replaced J- Jackson Carlaw earlier this year with Douglas Ross, mm. someone who's very much seen to be a much more dynamic campaigner, someone who has got, been seen to have a much greater appeal. And of course, Ruth Davidson has been brought back into a much greater role within the Scottish Conservatives um, leading the party in the Scottish Parliament. Of course, Douglas Ross is currently sitting in Westminster. He'll be taking a seat, though, in that Parliament, we imagine, after the next election. See, the Scottish parliamentary elections take place next year, and there's big calls that if SNP get majority in that, then we could be having a greater calls for an independence referendum. How should Douglas Ross then go about that election? Where does he need to be putting his focuses? Well, you know, it's, it's easy to say, but it's got to make the case for the union. Um, I, th- I think, though, that this, you know, renaissance of appeal and uh, for referendum, a second referendum has come about, you know, rather coincided with the People's Vote campaign for the second referendum of European Union membership. Um, I, I think, you know, we've now got fixated on the concept of the ability just to have a referendum every few years until there's a result which uh, one wants. Um, I think Douglas Ross brings a, another dimension. He's young, charismatic, uh, and you know it has been hard in these first few months uh, as leader, considering with COVID and everything like this. But really needs to get the points across that the benefits of the union outweigh a desire for um, for an independent Scotland. Of course, he needs to make the case over and over again that on day one of independence from the United Kingdom, the SNP would want to throw Scotland into the European Union which, of course, I think is increasingly, as we get a deal with the European Union, as we start to detach ourselves from the European Union, that'll be increasingly an unpopular move for the SNP to, to champion. OK, um, Enoch, if I can just get you to respond to Johnny, but also um, someone we haven't mentioned yet, 
um, Boris Johnson. Um, that same focus group um, gave Boris Johnson, I believe, a negative 51 point um, approval rating in Scotland. And one of the points that Alex Massey made in his article is that Boris Johnson himself is contributing towards um, the greater polling for independence. What do you make of that? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think it's, it's very easy. I, I don't want to tread on anyone's toes. Um, obviously, Boris is getting popular among some people. I, obviously, nationally wide, he's far more popular. I mean, I don't think he's quite positive, but he's far more popular. But in Scotland, I think they, they do hate him. They see him as a great Brexit bringer, and Scotland voted very strongly for Remain. Um, so I think he has some big issues there winning over the union. Um, but I, I do think there's still a path for unions to go forward, um, even with even with someone so pol as polarising, actually not polarising the wrong word, as hated in Scotland as Boris Johnson is. You need to emphasise different figures, more, you know, actually Scottish figures in, in Conservatives and Labour, in the Liberal Democrat Party, if they still matter, um, and focus on building their profile up so that they can still be persuasive voice for unionism there, rather than relying on London-based voices. Well, um, to, if we do have any Liberal Democrats listening right now, very sorry um, to you indeed for Enoch Slander <laughs> there. Um, just very quickly, um, Scottish Parliament elections next year. We've got about a minute left, so I'm just going to ask each of you quickly. Um, how do you think they will go? Do you think there will be an independence referendum within the next few years? So, Johnny, let's ask that question to you first. Um, I'd say very quickly, no to the independence referendum. There, there won't be, even if the SNP retain a majority, which I, I, I expect they will, by the way. I I strongly expect they will retain a majority. But I think Douglas Ross and the Conservatives will champion the unionist cause and steal those votes from the Liberal Democrats and even uh, lifelong Labour unionists to really uh, have a strong opposition. OK, and Enoch, very, very quickly, same thing. Very quickly, um, SNP majority... Hope, uh, maybe Labour starts. Maybe Labour. Hopefully, Labour commits to being properly unionist this time and start winning some seats back. I don't see it happening though. So, well, that that is it. Whatever happens, I think it's going to be very interesting to see whether the SNP get that majority, whether we have an independence referendum anytime soon. That, of course, we will be following throughout all of next term and leading up to the referendum. And we'll be back in the second hour. We're we'll talking, of course, of the fact that our students. We've been going home. We'll also be talking about COVID vaccinations and what if Britain never joined the EU? What if the last few years never happened? Across campus, online and on 12.51am. This, this, this is your student radio station. Actually, I want to ask my guests this quickly. Um, there's a lot of Christmas songs, some very good, some very bad. Mostly the modern Christmas songs are very bad. But um, what, what is your arguably your favourite Christmas song? Just, just out of interest, Enoch, what, 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 um, what is yours? The best Christmas song, no arguments, just the best one, um, is, of course, Slade, Merry Xmas, Everybody. Ooh. I feel, I feel when I was, like, five or six, I was really young, that used to be the one. But now, I don't know. I feel my, t my taste has changed now. I, I feel like punk and Christmas don't go well together. I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm here to tell you you're wrong. I'm here to tell everyone you're wrong, Cam. <laughs> Johnny, what about yourself? You got a favourite Christmas song at all? Yeah, I, I'm I'm just sucker for Christmas music, really. I love I love it all, but one which has just been just in my head the last few days specifically has been a uh, Santa Tell Me by Ariana Grande. You know that is that is one of the few exceptions of modern Christmas, you know, music which is right up there with the very best. No, definitely, and as an exception to uh, many recent Ariana Grande songs, a song that is capitalised at the start of its words as well. Um, 
obviously I'm not trying to ruin Christmas by putting a grammar lesson into it or mm. anything. But mm. um, yeah, I'm actually one of my favorite Christmas songs. I was hoping to play it on the show today, but actually when I was going through the show, I realized it was slightly too long. Um, is um, Space Man Came Traveling by Krista Burr, which I've given it a thought and I have decided we will be playing on our Christmas Day show. Um, as I said earlier, we are going to be on Christmas Day. Um, the alternative will have a two hour slot. Um, more info on that on our social media. Really looking forward to that. Um, speaking of Christmas, though, um, we have, um, of course, Johnny will, will be. But for myself and Enoch, we have gone home. Um, of course, the government introduces a student travel window this year um, for students to be able to go home in. And um, I'm trying to plan a return to the term two, which seems to be a staggered return with students returning over a period of two to three weeks at the start of term to be able to or to avoid the scenes that we saw at the start of this term where many students arrived almost at once and we saw a quite a significant surge in cases of coronavirus so I guess I'm going to split this into two bits really so firstly in terms of coming home for Christmas just to talk very quickly about that um how have you guys found the process did you enjoy your COVID test last week getting that swab up at the back of your tonsils and up at the back of your nose almost making like you were going to cry yep I, my eyes did water at that test I'm, I'm going to openly admit that but um did you have how did you find traveling home as well did you feel able to safely get home on public transport um Enoch start off with you I, I'm going to admit something very humiliating I booked two COVID tests and I immediately forgot what time I booked them um so <laughs> I, on the day I was like oh did I have a test today and I checked like oh great I missed my test oh no so I, I feel like I've gone home illegally, technically. I've just gone home, um, untested, but ho- hopefully COVID-free. I have to, uh, I'm praying to God. Um, I, how am I finding experience of getting home? Honestly, I, it generally, it didn't really occur to me how, you know, when I was getting on the train, I was getting, I went to the London Underground, um, for God's sake. I also, I, only at the end, I was like, actually, that was disgusting, I think. Um, health-wise, probably a bad idea. But, you know, I, I felt fine. I felt safe. You know, that's requirements being taken. I had a mask on. There's hand sanitizer everywhere. I, I think if you if you're careful, you can be safe. Yeah, Johnny. What about yourself? You haven't um, gone home yet, but how are you sort of finding the whole process of going home for Christmas? Do you think it's something that's been done safely? Yeah. So I, I had my two tests, um, the latter end of last week, and I'm just staying in my in my house here in Leamington, so I'm being very careful. But I thought it was, you know, on the whole, handled quite well, really. Uh, it's also, you know gave an, or the lack of an incentive to go out and about, you know, and see other people go to other homes because you wanted to get those negative test results back. Um, and alongside sort of most likely high university dense areas uh, being in tier three. So it was actually a very, very, very good way and very safe way of ensuring that, you know, kids and students could definitely go back to see their families. Uh, so I was very, you know, very happy with it really, to be honest. No, I, I think general consensus, I think students have, even if they didn't like the tests themselves, I think they like the idea of getting tested mm. and being able to go home safely. Definitely. Have a degree of confidence. I think mm. that's a, it's being able to go home and celebrate Christmas and not feel like you have to sort of keep yourself away from the rest of your family for a couple of weeks because you've returned um, those two negative tests. Um, obviously, we're enjoying Christmas at home at the moment. Um, the vast, vast majority of students um, in tier two areas, I have one friend who's actually technically an alumni who lives in Leamington. And he is going back to the Isle of Wight. The most annoying thing about that is from the window in my house, I can literally stick my head out the window 
and I can literally see the Isle of Wight. I so I so close to me, I can see the main roads upright. I can see to the Weatherspoons at the top of the street where people will be streaming in and out of in that tier one area. It's very frustrating. You, you, you sound like Sarah Palin right now. <laughs> well, I, I can see the Isle of Wight from my house. I mean, I, I can. I can. I, I can't help it. And, and she could see Russia. You know, it's, it's, it's just true. Actually, a very fun fact about that. Sarah Palin actually never said that. No, it, was, it was Tina Fey. It was I Tina Fey. That's yeah. the impact of Saturday Night Live on, on <laughs> just ruined Sarah Palin. Although many would also argue that she did that herself. But um, moving away from Sarah Palin now, I'm back to um, students. Obviously, start of term two next year. Um, students are going to be obviously going back to campus. And one of the things the university did under the recommendations of the government is to stagger um, the return of students. So what's going to be happening is on from the first week of term, we're going to have students being taught in labs um, where online teaching is impossible. Those particularly, I think, for mainly for science students to be heading back for the first week of term. Um, the first years and I believe um, postgraduate taught students will then be heading back for teaching from the third week of term. And then the case for the vast majority of students, so for second and third years, um, they will be heading back um, to get online face-to-face -face teaching from week four. Now, we are all in that latter bracket. So we will have the first three weeks of teaching next term fully online and face-to-face -face teaching starting again in week four. So I, I guess, Johnny, let's come to you first on this. What's your initial reaction? to this i guess the logic behind this is that you're staggering the return of people hoping that they'll go back to um campuses slightly later and a slightly less sort of similar pace in terms of everyone going all at once potentially reducing the spread of covid what, what, what's your initial reaction to this well you know i'm not a big fan of online teaching um i don't think it's necessarily a great a great thing to do and not very beneficial but if there's to be, you know, two, one, two, three week period of online teaching so that we can have the rest of term in person, then I think it has to be seriously considered. And I, I would, you know, endorse that sort of uh, methodology to get students back to uh, learning in person. Um, the worst thing we can do is just have a massive uh, upheaval in, in coronavirus cases the second we go back to university and then be thrown in a potential another lockdown or you know, union strikes so that we don't have any online uh, in-person teaching. So we've got to be very careful and we need to look at the bigger picture rather than just uh, the first few weeks crying because we're learning online. Well, if I can sort of come back on you with that, because even now, first time round, um, we didn't have, even when we were in lockdown, face-to-face um, -face or the blended learning approach the university pursued um, still went ahead. And the university, interestingly, have said that before you start getting any face-to-face -face teaching, they recommend that you um, get negative um, coronavirus tests similarly to what we've had with students going home. So could students have simply just gone and got the tested similarly to how they went home to allow face-to-face -face teaching to start earlier? Well, I guess that's, uh, you know, that's always an option. But I think um, it, it's mainly the spread. You can get a negative test and then catch it a few hours later. So I think it's just, there's some things where you've got to just be overwhelmingly careful. And um, 
and I, I guess the hope is when you go home with your negative test, you're going home to your families and not necessarily socialising with huge amounts of people. Whereas everyone knows coming back to university, the trouble is you're going to be socialising with, you know, in some cases, dozens of other students. Um, but yes, I mean, that's, that must be an option which they considered, but maybe there's a reason why it wasn't uh, pursued further. Okay, Enoch, if I can come to you now, do you agree with Johnny then that this online teaching for the first couple of weeks is not preferable, but for, it's a short-term loss for the greater good, shall we say? Absolutely. I think the government itself has recommended a staggered return. As we saw beginning of this term, having everyone come back at once is just, it is a nightmare. It leads to cases spiking. It leads to, it leads to tier three. That is, if we want to go back to a tier two university, the only way to do that, I think, is through staggered return. I do question the order in which return is happening. It's almost the exact, um, apart from the first week, it's almost the exact reverse of the government suggestions. Um, and we can, we can all speculate on why that is. But I, yeah, I, other than that, I think it's the, the right call. Well, the, actually, it's, it's an interesting point that you make because for many second and third years, surely there's an argument, even perhaps, I don't know if it'll be the case for first years, whether they will try to keep people out of um, accommodations. But certainly for second and third year students, we have, houses off campus that we can go to at any point so is it a students may return at the start of term particularly if Leamington and Coventry and the surrounding areas brought down to tier two and that in itself could lead to a spread of cases anyway I mean what, what, what do you say to that I, th- I think it's very I think it's very interesting I, I, I I'm not entirely sure what the university's thinking on it I, I think largely because from what I understand there's no um, there's nothing to prevent people from staying Either currently staying now because Jefferson's currently staying, or or coming back to accommodation any time. But I, I do think I think they're very solid reasoning. If they, although I I don't trust Stuart Cross enough to think it's his reasoning. That's that's my overall thinking. Well, well, I'm obviously impartial to make a comment on the vice chancellor at the moment. But actually, before we start, Enoch, speaking on the vice chancellor, you are I'm going to be interviewing him later this week. Uh, yes, um, myself, the Royal Station Manager, Leeds Ferry Stocks, and the Boars wonderful heads of news um we're going to be interviewing um Stuart Croft this Thursday um by the time you hear this we'll have probably closed submission for questions but if you even think about if you have a question please send me a message and I'll, I'll put add it to my list of things to ask by Thursday yes it, it will I'm certainly an interview I'm looking forward to I think there's a lot of questions I certainly want to ask the top of that of course being asking Stuart Croft what this one hell of a party that he promises when coronavirus is over, I, you 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 sounded slightly exasperated there. Enoch. I'm guessing I'm not the first person to, to, have to hear about this one hell of a party one more time. <laughs> I feel I feel the minute Stuart Cross said that, I feel he just opened himself up to a lot of demanding students just wanting, <laughs> just wanting this one hell of a party. And of course, that will be when we do return to normality. But for now, yeah. we aren't returning to normality, and we're going to be talking about COVID vaccinations soon. But um, one very interesting thing is regarding um, students and vaccination. And students, we know, aren't going to be the priority for vaccinations. But if society starts returning to normal and you have students who haven't been vaccinated against coronavirus, how can you ensure that students can go about safety if there's still coronavirus sort of acting latently in society? How can you ensure that students will be kept safe even if they are those if other members of society that will have been vaccinated. Um, Johnny, I'm going to ask you first. 
you know, well, well, fortunately, an aspect of uh, coronavirus has just come um, to the surface is that it doesn't necessarily affect you, uh, you know, people of student age. So the age ranges from any, anything below forty, really, it seems to be okay. Um, but by that, sort of like a minor, in mostly yeah. minor infection. Yes. Yeah. Well, obviously, saying that, <laughs> I don't think anyone's advocating that students can just run around with coronavirus, um, you know, free. Um, free without any restrictions but i think there's got to be a, a a manageable point by which we say it's okay to start returning back to normality uh and not just having those proposals of like you know coronavirus passports uh showing you can't go to events unless you um you've been vaccinated you can't go across the world unless you've been vaccinated um etc etc okay and enoch that same question to you i i, I think it, it, it's going to be a while. I do think if, student, if we can't, I hopefully we've acquired enough vaccines. The other vaccines coming. But with a large cooperation, we can get every, we can get everyone who wants to be vaccinated. Hopefully, it is everyone. Because I, I swear, anti-vax is ruinous for us. I will get very annoyed um, uh. by summer of this year. But if that does not happen, then I I I do worry it could be a while. I hope we don't see COVID passport COVID passport events. But I think in terms of international travel, I do think very soon it's going to become a requirement. It's all the same with any other kind of vaccination. If you go into a place where it could cause an issue, um, but yeah, I do think hopefully, hopefully we'll get vaccinated. But if not, it's going to be it's going to be here. It's going to be here a long time. Well, I could see um, Enoch was getting slightly exasperated at the thought of talking about anti-vaxxers there. So that is precisely what we are going to be doing after this. Music. Welcome back to another week of Psychedemics. Hello, everybody. You're listening to The Vinny Show. You are listening to Rockstar. I'm backstage Casper. Hello. Hello. Sports. There's a team spirit going on behind it. You're all rooting for each other. Oh, yeah. Good job. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, the idea of popular films being nominated for Oscars. I just think the style that Marvel has made us just put them, like, way above. Speech. Oh, my God. There's a trolley. <laughs> Really, all about like educating, networking, and sharing our stories. I think the SU has a really uh, important role in engaging students with politics. News. Good evening, and welcome to the big decision. Ben and Marissa tied. This is your student radio station. This is Raw, twelve fifty one AM. Across campus, online, and on 12:51 a.m. This, this, this is your student radio station. We said at the end of the last section we're going to be talking about anti-vaxxers now, and so. One of the things, obviously, we've seen, we've seen coronavirus vaccines have been um, released. And indeed, in the UK, the Pfizer jab has started to go out across the country. We mentioned earlier, uh, Margaret Kennan received um, the first vaccine at University um, Hospital Coventry as well. So a very nice bit of local news as well. But also, as Enoch said earlier, the Bard himself, William Shakespeare, um, got um, the second coronavirus vaccine. But of course, we have these vaccines coming out now. and It's not just Pfizer, um, it's also Moderna as well. That um, could be heading off to regulators soon. And also the Oxford vaccine as well, which, as Enoch has said, is very much, I think, the main hope for a lot of people here in the UK. But as well as that, we've seen quite a lot of scepticism has been um, released and 
in the public domain about this. Now, um, vaccine skepticism and anti-vaccine movements is something that is not um, immune. We obviously saw it with MMR, with the um, paper produced to say that MMR vaccines link to autism, that of course being debunked as complete rubbish. And of course we saw that erupt quite um, significantly a few years ago in Wales when um, there was a measles outbreak from people who had heeded the words of that report, not taking the vaccine and then measles spread around Wales about sort of seven years ago. But with this coronavirus vaccine, there's been a lot of concerns that people have had that the vaccine has been developed in a significantly quicker amount of time than any normal vaccine. Now, of course, the regulators have been very clear that this has gone through all of the processes that any other vaccine would need to go for and that peer-reviewed studies as well have proven that these vaccines are not just effective, but also safe. But of course, vaccinations and achieving herd immunity from vaccination relies upon a certain amount of people taking these vaccines and ensuring that you reach that level of herd immunity. We've seen it with diseases like polio, for example, in the past, how it can work to eradicate um, infectious diseases. So Enoch, let's come to you first then. Um, there's a lot of skepticism. Well, there is skepticism over these coronavirus vaccines. Do you think that any of it is justified? No. Um, actually, no, that, that's very too clear. harsh. That's, that's, very, that's far too harsh. Obviously, when you're looking at vaccines, there's, I think there's the big sort of glut we focus on of people floating insane conspiracy theories like vaccines cause autism. Um, and they can be safely ignored as the worker cranks and just simply you're dismissed. Then there's sort of the trail end, the long, and this is the long tail end. These are people can have a real issue with. They have sort of reasonable concerns. They think it's been approved too quickly. They think there's not enough testing been done. And all you can try to do to them is try and reassure them enough that things work and this is safe. And then hope that eventually, as the benefits prove themselves, they will go out and, they, they will go out and get vaccinated. Um, but I, do, I, I, I think there simply is no time to tolerate anti-vaccine views in society, um, especially if you want to start getting, you must, you want to get people vaccinated really quickly, if this, if this is going to work. Well, Johnny, I, I guess that's the key point there that Enoch has made, that to, for us to return to normality, the vaccine very much has been, even from March, we've been saying mm. that the vaccine is the way out of this and back to normality. We've got this yeah. vaccine now. Should sceptics just hold back and should we just, for the greater good, you know, say to people that they need to be taking these vaccines? Well, you know, what I'd first say is scepticism is not necessarily a bad thing. In life, it's good to question things and, you know, analyse things, evaluate things just to really make sure you know what you're doing. At the end of the day, I'm not an expert on vaccines, so I've got no idea what's going on in my body. But, of course, it's imperative that we don't undermine this COVID vaccine. Um, and, and actually, you know, I hear so many arguments thrown around that we need to vaccinate so we can go back to clubs and go back to uh, you know the normal social life we had before uh, before covid we'll, we'll know really the reason we need the vaccine is to protect the the people who could die because of covid and and to get our economy up and running again uh, that there are there are far more important aspects of why we need to take these vaccines than the social aspect of it uh, but I, I would say it's important we do question everything and, and make sure it's a very thorough investigation into the reliability um, of these vaccinations. 
Well, I think that thoroughness that obviously we've seen from a lot of the peer-reviewed studies and the science has been being put forward, that they have been stressing the thoroughness and the reliability of all of their tests that they've been putting forward. But perhaps one thing that has arisen concern in Enoch, this was something that um, you mentioned um, sort of before we were preparing the show, was with the Oxford vaccine, where it has been found to be more effective, kind of through accident, almost. And so... Do you think it's things like this, these accidents of science that obviously, you know, may have fantastic results and may have improved the efficacy of that vaccine, but just by the nature of it, risks undermining public trust? What do you what, what do you think about that? Well, I think some of the greatest science, some of the greatest scientific discoveries of history have been accidents, like think of penicillin, for example. Um, it's not the accidental nature of the discovery. It's the way they, they handled it once they discovered this fact, simply in retrospectively included in the trial where that should not have been done, a separate trial should have been launched. But also the way the media covered it, where for many, sort of almost over two weeks, no one talked about these concerns, in England at least, in America they were widely discussed, until eventually the American press coverage sort of filtered back to the UK, and that changed a lot of the topic of conversation. Um, so if people don't feel like they can trust the media to tell them accurately what's going on, then I don't know, that's, we sort of, we've already lost, lost a game there. Well, it seems to be something that a point that you've raised there, which we can move on to now, is that obviously with all of the scepticism related to the coronavirus vaccine, and obviously there are people who will be sceptical and will not want to take it. And so perhaps it's the way that it is communicated to the public, whether that's through the government or indeed through the press. And we know that the government communication strategy with coronavirus has been criticised at times for being unclear. So, Johnny, if I could come to you now. Um, if, the, if this vaccine and getting public trust relies on effective communications, how do you think the government can do this? Well, you know, we've got a lot of influential figures in our in our day to day lives. And this is the same all around the world. Public figures, uh, heads of states, sportsmen and women, uh, comedians, um, you know, film stars. There are so many people we can, you know, publicize taking this vaccine, people who millions of people look up to um i think last week it was uh announced on the weekend sorry it was announced that george w bush uh bill clinton and barack obama will be publicly taking the vaccine once it's approved in america uh just to install uh this this trust that this isn't going to be some you know crazy vaccine it's going to be a reliable and safe vaccine uh, in this country i think there was uh potential plans of the queen and, and the duke of edinburgh um, having the um, vaccine uh, you know, recorded live just to really show that uh, this is okay for everybody in society to have. Yeah, I um, apparently saw, I think it was a tweet that was saying that, of course, you can only trust Britain to be British when it won't take a coronavirus vaccine until Christopher Biggins says that he will happily publicly take that vaccine. <laughs> Biggins, I salute you. Um, this one thing, though, I wanted to press you on. Um, quickly, Johnny. Um, I am accuse me here of being slightly cynical, but you know, you talk about some of the politicians there who've said to have been taking these vaccines, but politicians aren't exactly the most trusted mm. um, group of people. So, do you think that's something that could be weaponized by conspiracy theorists? Um, oh, oh, definitely. Um, but I think you know, we need to use our, our own good judgment. Um, I think, I know she's not a political figure, she's far above politics. But uh, if the Queen was to take it, I don't think many people would have too many complaints with, with that. Um, 
I think, you know, it's not going to be easy, but with the hope that people see politicians take it themselves, then, you know, we all know politicians, they wouldn't do it unless it's 100% safe. Well, I I think that is very true. Enoch, if I can come to you then, on the same point of just from discussing there with Johnny, do you think that there are particular groups of people who, if they took a vaccine and showed it was safe, that that would encourage people to take the coronavirus vaccine? Um, you know, absolutely. And you know, um, I think that group of people is me. I think I should get vaccinated. I'm happy to right now, live on television. Um, and I'm sure that no. it's it, just something to arrange in January, live on Insight. Yeah, um, um, will, I've, been, I've, been emailing, coronavirus I've been emailing people all over the place. Being like, look, I'm telling you, you want to get students vaccinated, <laughs> just give it straight to me. That's how it's going to work. Um, I think Johnny raised an interesting point there about, I think absolutely the Queen is someone who if you've vaccinated, I do feel like Prince Lock if you trust. Um, sort of in a similar but opposite way, Prince Andrew, if you've, if you've made a video of him saying he wouldn't get vaccinated, <laughs> people rush out there to get vaccinated just to oppose him. Um, I do think you know, there needs to be search for non-political, non-partisan figures who people do have a lot of respect for. Uh, it's hard to find those people in, you know, in our current times, but I think it's still achievable. Yeah, and I think certainly with regards to yourself on campus, obviously you are a Beanock, Enoch. Oh, so I think you would this. give a lot of um, a lot of campus. <laughs> Definitely. Um, we've been talking about vaccine scepticism, but something else we just to move on to is vaccine nationalism. And I think really with regards to the quite interesting debate we saw last week when Anthony Fauci, who has been very much the doctor at the centre of the US's coronavirus response, effectively the, I'd say, the Chris Whitty of the United States. Um, um, Anthony Fauci has said, uh, criticised the UK regulators for approving um, the Pfizer jab too quickly and said, and he later backtracked and say that this doesn't mean it's necessarily any less safe and any less effective, but he spoke of um, different regulatory processes within the US. It led, of course, to um, quite interesting statements from the UK government, most notably um, Gavin Williamson, who said that the UK approved the vaccine first because we have the best scientists in the world. Um, This vaccine nationalism, and it was a fear that people had at the start of the pandemic, which is that people were trying to stockpile vaccines for themselves, and it wouldn't get out to poorer countries who might be needing the vaccines and struggling to produce it themselves. Um, Johnny, I'll come to you first again. Um, what is your mm. opinion on vaccine nationalism? Is that the, arguably a bigger threat than vaccine scepticism? Well, you know, I think vaccine nationalism produced something which is actually, in a weird way, been very beneficial. It produced this competition where it was sort of, you know, countries all around the world wanted to have their names uh, akin to great manufacturers of producing the first you know, accurate and successful vaccination. Um, I think if anything, it was a good thing. I think it, it, you know, massively increased this competition and the speed and the reliability. Um, and then, you know, in, in turn, those, those findings can be then reproduced at massive levels to be given out to uh, less economically developed countries around the world. So I think actually the key thing was getting a vaccine in the first place. And once we get a successful vaccine, then distributing that should be a lot more easier. OK, Enoch, what do you think to that? Because interestingly, um, Russia, of course, have their coronavirus vaccine, Sputnik V, and that has had similar effectiveness. It's come out in its testing, similarly effective to the Pfizer and the Moderna jab. But people in the West haven't touched it almost. Oh, I, so do you I, think I, there's I, a little bit of nationalism at play there? 
I'm sure Russ's vac- I'm sure Russ's vaccine absolutely meets our high high standards of medical uh, medical science. Um, I, I I honestly I no I can't really take it seriously. I I think no one's touched Russ's vaccine because I think it's a, either a joke or some kind of trap. Um, I think that the tensions there are too high at the moment. I think that to really work. I do think it all comes down to Oxford, who, which was purpose-built to be a cheaper vaccine, only two pounds to think Moderna's 20, built for distributing around the world. Um, I hate vaccine nationalism as much as anyone else does, but I think we can actually, as a, as a country, putting the pack itself on the back on that. We did a good job. We, 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 we picked the, the moral high road in our vaccine. Um, okay, I, can, I, yeah. can, I, can I just say, really, is that response, perhaps, to the Russian vaccine and you know, the higher regulatory standards in Britain. Is that precisely the problem, that this Russian jab exists and we're downplaying it in the West and we're almost contributing towards the scepticism towards it? Um, you know what? Probably. Probably. I, just, I don't trust... I can't trust Vladimir Putin. It's actually, I think, it's something in my brain just won't let me do it. I see him say things. I'm like, Vladimir Putin could look me in the eye and say the sky is blue. And I look up and they'll be like, I, I, I don't know how you're lying to me, Vladimir, but you're doing it. Um... Yeah, I, but yeah, I think the vaccine nationalism are kind shown by sort of Gavin Williamson. I do think it's it's not helpful. It's not helpful to you know sort of trying to you know, build cooperation between nations and trying to get sell vaccines to people. I don't think Fauci's come to helpful either. I think Britain Britain generally is world beating when it comes to medicine. We are at the very top of that you know of the I would say game of you know the medicine industries. There's a reason Europe based the medicine agency here. There's a reason for it. Um, so I think I, I tend to trust our regulatory agencies. I think Fauci was helpful. He himself walked it back because he knew it wasn't going to be helpful. Um, but yeah, I think vaccine nationalism is bad, but Britain is actually quite good. So who, who knows? I feel if the British government are listening, I feel that just short two minute segment from yourself there, Enoch, I feel is exactly what needs to be communicated to convince people to take up. Um, the vaccines when they are released. That, well, that's why you should vaccinate me first. To prove <laughs> it works. Well, I will. I will communicate it to Lucy Shan and Rin to make sure that this does happen live on air. Um, we're going to move on now slightly. Now, going as we spent the start of the show talking about Britain and the EU, we only feel it's good to end the show talking about Britain and the EU. Specifically, what if we never joined? But first, this. Looking for a bite to eat at the Warwick SU? Daily specials and fine dining experience at the brand new Canopy. Karaoke, pub grub and lager on tap at the Dirty Duck. Salad and sarnies to go in the bread oven. Or a latte link up at Curiosity. There's something to suit any taste and any budget. And if you've got a big night ahead of the copper room, start it right at Tea Bar. With speciality cocktails. Best stock prices. And our expertly stocked bar overlooking the piazza. At Warwick SU Outlets, there's something to satisfy every taste. Your breakfast, the feel-good way to start your day. This is Breakfast Radio for Warwick students, by Warwick students. Playing the feel-good hits and brightening up your morning. Plus, we have the best gaps, games and giveaways to freshen up your stagecoach commute. Listen to Raw Breakfast every day from 8am. Across campus, online and on 12.51am. This, this, this is your student radio station. We're coming in now to the last 10 minutes of our show here, our last show at the end of this term. Um, But, of course, it's not the end of us entirely this month. We will, of course, be broadcasting on Christmas Day on Raw 12.51am. Please keep an eye out on our social medias for more information of when we are broadcasting. We are looking, I'm certainly looking forward to hosting that show. Um, Now, 
as we said at the start of the show, this is obviously a big week with regards to um, the UK's negotiation with the EU over its future relationship. But take ourselves back 40 years ago, 47 years ago to 1973, when the EU first joined the European Economic Community as it was at that time, which eventually became the EU and transitioned through various guises to the point where we're at now when we have already left the EU and we're now coming out to define our future relationship. But say, for example, that we never actually joined. And it's a very feasible prospect. Of course, um, French President Charles de Gaulle continuously blocked um, British attempts to join throughout the 1950s and the 1960s. It may have been, even though Ted Heath did say that he wanted to join Europe, that perhaps you know, he didn't get the time before his election in 1974. We knew that the Labour Party were a very Eurosceptic party who may never have signed up to the EU. Now, compared to some of our other counterfactuals that we've done this term, I must admit this is perhaps the least likely of them. But let's just say that the UK never joined the EU. Just how different would it be? How different would the world be now? So, Enoch, let's come to you first. If we never joined the EU 47 years ago, what do you think that our relationship with Europe would be? Right now. Uh, I think had we never joined the EU 40 years ago, right now, um, ardent European Boris Johnson will be fighting desperately to get your England to sign up for EU in order to save us from your that, that, that is quite an alternative reality. I can see it happening now. Um, no, I mean, honestly, have we ever joined the EU? That changed so much of British history over the past 40 years, it is actually quite hard to say. I mean, some things are obviously the same. I think, um, Jim Callahan loses the election, Margaret Thatcher wins. I think she does serve her full time. I think we see the general arc of British politics stays the same, but some of the crucial battles vanish. Um, and I think that it's all but uncontestable to see how much I change things. For instance, Black Tuesday, that doesn't happen. Was it Black, Black Wednesday? I mean, it doesn't happen in this universe. So is John Mays just still sunk, or does he manage to cling on a few more years? It's so many different questions this raises. That it's, it's John Major, un- even Prime Minister. John Major, does he even exist? John Major's advanced from this <laughs> timeline. I think, Johnny, something very interesting that comes from this is Europe has literally been the dividing issue of the Conservative Party throughout the last few decades. It's been an issue that has brought down Conservative Party leader and many. What do you think the Conservative Party um, would be like? What sort of issues would it be? Would it be a much more united party if the UK never joins the EU? Well, you know, I think consensus politics of the post-war period really sort of, you know, told to us that there wasn't much dividing the Conservative Party and the Labour Party uh, a whole lot of the time after World War II. Um, I think what what issue of Europe did was it it, it did transform the Conservative Party. And I think you, you make a very good point when you say would the Conservative Party be more united? But I, I would just thus, you know, say as a rebuttal of that is globalization still would have happened at the same same speed around the world, I think. And there still would have always been this this fraction of the Conservative Party, uh, which would have been skeptical of closer union with, with any any other nations around the world. Um I think, you know, a neoliberal policy uh, maker like Thatcher actually came up with a lot of arguments against the European Union. Of course, she she represented the the, the, the side to, to join the European Union in that referendum, but she obviously um, negotiated the, the rebate. 
but I still think there would have been the same arguments just outside of uh, of Europe. You would have had a divide in the Conservative Party, uh, some arguing for European Union membership and some maintaining that we should never have European Union membership for the 20, 30 years up to today. Well, let, let's kind of think about the situation we're in now then where we're leaving Europe and we're going out into this independent world as such where Britain is very much now on its own. Um, would it have been that a lot of the partnerships that the UK is pursuing, whether it be its stronger um, trade ties with the US, things like Kansas, so Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, the Commonwealth, would these have been much more greater partners and there have been much more deeper political and economic integration with them than there would have been Europe? Is the future almost of this global Britain that Britain has been sort of talking about the last few years, would that have been something that would have taken place 40, 50 years ago? Enoch, let's come to you first on that. I, I think... I don't see that any of those groups have come apart in the same way Europe has. I mean, there's very there's a very clear reason we have we dealt the partnership with Europe, and it's right there. I think the Commonwealth, the very nature of the Commonwealth, I think will make that difficult to have the same relationship we did with Europe. Um, Kanzuk is, is is a beautiful dream, but it is in many ways just a dream. Those other countries have you know many of their own interests. I think we definitely may have had closer ties with them, you know, economically, but I don't see sort of these uh, the sort of strong political union coming from it. I think. We would see sort of that model that global Britain, or you know, making free trade with everywhere it could. Um, how successful that would be, I think, is up to your interpretation. If you're Arthur Brexiteer, you'll think obviously math successful. If you're more of a Remainer type, maybe you wouldn't think it would have gone quite as well. But I think we would have seen that sort of more archetype of you know global Britain. Okay, Johnny, what do you think to that? So um, I think the reason it's more of an enticing concept now, greater uh, trade and greater relationship with our Commonwealth. Uh, partners is that actually a lot of the emerging markets of the world and, and growing economies are members of this commonwealth um, such as Nigeria for example and I think actually back in the 70s there, w- there wasn't a, a reliable commonwealth um, you know abundance of nations to trade with and have a close relationship with of course we had commonwealth nations coming to communism uh, but now I think actually as a alternative to the European Union there is a much you know, greater case which can be made for greater relations with Commonwealth nations. But I would agree that back in back in the 70s and the 60s, things were very different. Just very, very quickly before we end. Um, a lot of the issues that were surrounding the Brexit referendum, I think particularly those of sovereignty and immigration as well, would these have been as significant issues today if we hadn't joined the EU? Enoch? Well, I think... The exact nature of EU immigration, or obviously the you know, complete free movement of people, charge the debate very differently. But I do think you look at places like America; immigration law is always an issue. It's an issue everywhere for everyone. Um, we can't escape it. Okay, Johnny, what do you think? I think the issues of immigration, which really popularised UKIP and uh, and other far right parties, um, was more the Eastern European uh, centred immigration. Um, I, I don't think it'd be fair to say that you'd have you have the same amount of disdain for immigration from Commonwealth nations as you do from Eastern Europe. I just think that's just a psychological and uh, that's just a, a part of the UKIP base. OK, well, I think it's fair to say if the UK had never joined the EU, that would have been a very alternative history. I think certainly one that we, we would have enjoyed a very alternative view of, definitely. I can see Enoch laughing at my extremely bad pun. And on that point, it's time for us to 
end this show, our last show, not just of this week, but also of this term as well. Thank you so much for um, tuning in. Um, it's been fantastic to have a prime time two hour slot here on Raw 12.51 AM to be able to broadcast to you like this every week. We hope you've enjoyed the show as well. If you have um, missed any of our shows, if you want to catch up on our content, um, all our shows are being posted onto Mixcloud and will be coming onto Spotify by the end of the week as well. So please make sure you tune in and give a listen.